Hello, everyone. You're listening to Crunch Squad. It's a podcast within a podcast where we discuss the rules, the mechanics, and the number crunching behind this wonderful game of Dungeons and Dragons. I am Ned Wilcock, your host for Crunch Squad, and today I'm joined by... It's me. It's Thomas. The host of the usual show is now joining <laughs> the host of the fake sideshow. It's a host palooza. Yes, it is. And why do we have Thomas here? Well, Thomas doesn't play a character in this campaign. Well, in fact, what we are doing is we're not talking about any of the characters that we are playing. We are instead fielding a request that we have received through our email address, podcastfireball2020 at gmail.com. You can write in about anything that, uh, anything you want, really. But we got a specific request from Sawyer Peralt. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but uh, we got an email asking if we could do a Crunch Squad about monks specifically. So... That's what we're going to do tonight. Yeah. And we're going to do what we usually do with Crunch Squad. We're just going to go piece by piece through the monk. And holy cow, there is a lot to go over with monks. There is a lot to go over, but I'm I'm actually very excited to go over the monk. Uh, I've mentioned previously the opportunities I have to be a player are very few and far in between. And the first thing I wanted to play, which I was able to play successfully, was a bard. I did that in some like Adventure League stuff, which, Ned, you were a part of my tiefling bard who, uh, uh, Morthos, uh, what was he, um, uh, College of Fear, uh, what, what was Whispers, I think it Whispers. was. Whispers, College of Whispers, there we go. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, but the other class that I really wanted to try out was the monk specifically. So going over it today, I think is going to help me out for when eventually I do take up the mantle of a player and I do play a monk in a one shot or go back to some Adventure League stuff. And I have played a monk for about four levels, I believe. Uh, Christian Randall from over on Improv Tabletop, he was DMing his first campaign. I played a monk for the first part of that and then decided that I personally, my play style, I don't really like martial classes that much. Uh, I get kind of bored when it's just, hey, I'm going to punch him over and over and over again. Uh, <laughs> you know me, I like to be able to do wacky weird stuff with all of my spells. But that said, that is my personal play style. And I know people who get lots of joy out of monks, like McKenna over on Improv Tabletop. She's told me that she would be perfectly happy if she never plays anything but monks for the rest of her life. Yeah, and she does a fantastic job. Uh, Monk adjacent, but um, in the Avatar Legends campaign you guys have going on over there, um, she really is digging some of the monk aspects that that tabletop system has to offer as well. I, I, I feel like it, it does translate a little bit. And it's definitely a very thematic class. And the mechanics really support that. This is um, kind of going from the wizard where, mechanically speaking, as far as specific abilities, it's kind of sparse. It's a lot of just you learn new spells, you gain more spell slots. The monk gets like distinct new abilities practically every time they level up. Yeah, it's every time they level up. That's the crazy thing is a lot a lot of classes it's um uh for instance uh, the rogue like um 
for, for Jacob, whenever he levels up, he goes, yeah, I leveled up. I don't get anything, but I leveled up. And so I got health type of a thing. Or he doesn't get like a spell. He doesn't get a special ability. So when he does, it's very like amazing and it's very rare. Um, or the wizard, like you said, your leveling up is the spells that you can cast or learn or you forget so that you can get different spells uh, due to your situation. Holy cow, the monk in the base player's handbook has two things, two to three things every single level. Um, it's it's crazy. It's absolutely bonkers to try and keep track of this stuff. Yeah, so starting at level one, uh, level one and level two is where you really, really get the bread and butter of what makes the monk the monk. Mm -hmm. First thing you get at level one is unarmored defense, which is while you're wearing no armor and not wielding any shield, your AC, typically the way you calculate AC is it's 10 plus your dexterity modifier unless you're wearing armor. If you're a monk and you have unarmored defense, it's 10 plus your dexterity plus your wisdom modifier. That really plays into the idea of you you being wise enough and uh, practiced enough to be able to deflect or dodge from attacks in addition to how fast you are as well. You're able to see things incoming and uh, be able to sense the world around you. Yeah, and a very unique kind of way of calculating armor class as well in terms of it's all based off of your ability scores essentially if you luck out and pretty early on get a plus five in your dexterity and your wisdom then your ac is 20 without wearing any armor yeah just and that that's just absurd for anybody to have an ac that's uh, above 20 i mean i know we had ralph who he was a wizard with a 19 ac not too recently <laughs> i mean recently but yeah to have a 20 that would just be mind-blowing and you need good defense because you're going to be up there right in the fray with your martial arts that you also get at level one. And there's a lot of stipulations that go into this, a lot of like fine little bullet points. Yeah. And this is a way to really tap into that monk flavor of, hey, I just punch people, I kick people. It's all about increasing the efficiency of your unarmed strikes. So... Martial arts applies technically, though, not only to unarmed strikes, but also to monk weapons, which includes short swords and any simple melee weapons that don't have the two-handed or heavy property, stuff like daggers, stuff like clubs. And while you are unarmed or wielding only monk weapons and aren't wearing armor or wielding a shield, first, you can use your dexterity instead of strength for the attack and damage rolls of your unarmed strikes and monk weapons. I mean, that's uh, really playing into uh, how you're, what you want your character to be anyway. Way. If you have unarmed defense, you want your def your dexterity modifier to be insanely high so that you don't have to wear armor and you can still move around and you can uh, not be hit um, well, So as you're not un un encumbered by this armor. And then being able to use that for your attacks as well, it's just a two-for-one special. Dexterity really is just like a top-tier ability score in 5e, just generally speaking. You really see that coming together with the monk. The next thing you get is traditionally when you make an unarmed strike, the damage you do equals one plus your strength modifier. Whereas here, you can roll a d4 in place of the normal damage of your unarmed strike or monk weapon, and that die increases as you gain monk levels. There's uh, each class has a table in the player's handbook, and starting from one d4, it's essentially every four, five-ish levels or so, roughly speaking, you eventually increase that martial arts die all the way up to a d10 
at level 17, and that continues through level 20. And that's and so if you get into a um, a bar brawl like uh, a tavern brawl, a lot of people say, "Oh, we, I get into a bar fight; it's going to take be so much damage." But no, rules as written, punching somebody in the face is just one point of damage plus your strength modifier for a minimum of one point of damage. So I mean, if you have a negative strength modifier, you're only doing one damage every single time you successfully punch somebody in the face. The monk, they just ignore that and it's whatever their martial arts die is so it starts with the d4 and it only goes up from there so they are really really gonna be just kill it when it comes to the tavern brawl <laughs> and not only is it being able to punch harder than most people it's being able to punch more times than most people as well because whenever you use the attack action with an unarmed strike or a monk weapon on your turn you can then make one unarmed strike as a bonus action that's awesome. I mean, that's very similar to like uh, two-weapon fighting right there. Uh, two-weapon fighting traditionally, uh, whether or not you take the feat, everybody is able to do two-weapon fighting in D&D as long as the weapons that they're fighting with are light. Um, and so like that's going to be short swords, that's going to be daggers, that's going to be, um, I, I believe those are the two that come to my mind right now. Um, but yeah, you can do your action uh, for one attack and then your bonus action for the second that's what the monk is able to do but with their monk weapons specifically which have a higher damage die and it leads into this idea of being able to punch at very fast so fast where people can't see and at low levels that's huge that level one through four that's amazing being able to attack twice in one turn and to be able to get your modifier to each successful attack as opposed to two-weapon fighting where you only get your modifier to one of those two attacks. Just to help you guys min-max a little bit, uh, I believe the best monk weapon you can choose at early levels is the quarterstaff yeah. because it doesn't have the two-handed property, so it counts as a monk weapon, but if you use it two-handed, then you get 1d8 damage, and then you get that extra punch in for free after that. Yeah, so you smack somebody across the face with a quarterstaff using both your hands. Uh, it's a 1d8, and then you jump in the air um, with that momentum, and you kick them, you do a backwards kick, and then that's a 1d4. Both of those using your modif your dexterity modifier if they're successful. And if your dex mod is close to the 5 that, Ned, you were proposing, so that you have a high AC um, for your unarmored defense and you have a high initiative, then that's going to be close to, like, plus 5 for each attack at level 1? Just crazy. And then at level 2 is where <laughs> we really start cooking with gas. Yeah, that's that's the only level 1. That's the first level. Yeah, level two, you get access to your key points. Key is the energy that travels through your body, and monks learn how to channel that to improve their physical abilities beyond what they normally would be able to. So starting at first level, well, starting at second level, you start with two key points, and then as you level up, you gain a number of key points equal to your level. Very easy to keep track of that way. And you get those recharged every short rest. And this is where you get some amazing, amazing abilities for the monk at level two, which is pretty much like, I can't emphasize enough how crazy it is that the monk gets these abilities at such an early level. I mean, at, with this key, you have the ability to do flurry of bl blows. You have the ability to do patient defense. You have the ability to do step of the wind. Each one of those only requiring one key point to use. And you, you say like one key point, that's half of my key points, but what you can do with those key points uh, will, can help you in a pinch. They're all something that you can decide in the moment 
and re- and have it benefit you immediately as opposed to like a wizard or a spellcaster who has to plan their turn well in advance. Yeah, and two of those that you mentioned, Step of the Wind and Patient Defense, this is fairly similar to one thing that we've already talked about with the rogue at second level. They get their uh, cunning action. This allows you to take actions that normally would take an entire action as a bonus action instead. Patient Defense, you spend one key point to get the dodge action as your bonus action. Step of the Wind, you spend one key point, and you can take either the disengage or dash action as a bonus action. And then on top of that, your jump distance is doubled for the turn. So the the normal things that you can do with an action on your turn, just regardless of class, you can take an attack action, you can take a dash action, and you can take a dodge action, and then you can take an aid action as well, right? So those are the big four big things you can do with an action. The monk is able to do three of those almost in the same turn. Step of the Wind allows you to disengage or dash. The patient defense, uh, and Step of the Wind's a bonus action, then patient events, you can use a bonus action to take the dodge action. And then Flurry of Blows, which I know, Ned, you're getting to here right here. When you take the attack action, you get to attack even more. Yeah, the only big downside here is you do only get one bonus action per turn. Yeah. So whichever one you choose, that's the only one you get for that turn. But Flurry of Blows, traditionally, the rule is with your martial arts, you take the attack action, you get a free attack with your bonus action. If you do Flurry of Blows, it increases that from one bonus action attack to two bonus action attacks for a total of three attacks in one turn. And one of the, one of those is with your weapon, which if you got the quarterstaff, it's a D8. If you got a high dex modifier, that could be plus four, plus five. And then each of those unarmored is gonna be plus four, plus five as well with that D4. That's one D8 and two D4 possibilities with a plus, plus 12. Yeah, which compare that to a barbarian swinging great axe, for example, they get to make one attack on their turn. Sure, their great axe does 1d12 damage, but three attacks in one turn with the opportunity to get your dexterity modifier as additional damage on top of all that is pretty compelling. Ned, I don't know if you know this, but um, I did go to school in mathematics, and uh, uh, I don't I don't think it's been brought up on the podcast very much or often at all, but uh, just having more dice to roll, just having more possibilities to make the attack just increases the likelihood and the uh, average amount of damage that you can possibly do. So if you are going for that min-max, I mean, that you're, you're on the right path at this point. I don't know if we've talked too much about the principle of action economy so far in Crunch Squad, but action economy is essentially how many actions can you take well, how many actions can your side take versus how many actions can the opposing side take? Mm-hmm. And a barbarian being able to take one action, yes, it's an action that can punch really hard, but being able to take multiple actions, that's more opportunities to land a hit. And generally speaking, the more things you can do to increase your personal action economy, the more likelihood you have that you will hit your opponent. Yeah, and this is something that maybe we'll talk in a future segment, future Crunch Squad episode, because that action economy is something that I've been been messing with to help um, make the Jank Squad have more engaging battles. The first instance was being Mondath in the Caldera, but another conversation for another time. Yes, because we are uh, several minutes into this and we haven't finished (laughs) level two yet. Uh, We should probably pick up the pace a little bit. This is going to be way too long. Okay. 
Next thing you get at second level, second thing at second level is unarmored movement. And starting at second level, your movement, speed in your movement speed increases by 10 feet, again, while you're not wearing armor or wielding a shield, similar to unarmored defense. And this bonus also increases as you level up, similar to how your martial arts die increases, until eventually, starting at 18th level, you have an additional 30 feet to your movement speed. So you don't even need to take a dash action at higher levels because your movement is already doubled. <laughs> and then another little cherry on top of this, starting at ninth level, you gain the ability to move along vertical surfaces and across liquid on your turn without falling during the move. And this is very uh, uh, kung fu cinema of you see the people running across the water and running across uh, all of these like crazy surfaces. That is... Um, that, that's, that's where you can relive those moments, those cinematic moments, which for people who become a monk in D&D, I feel like that's what they want. They want to relive these cinematic moments or um, be an airbender or a waterbender or things like that. Yeah, and you see those different archetypes reflected a lot in the monastic traditions, which starting at third level, you get your subclass, your monastic tradition, and the flavor of these varies pretty wildly. You've got the shadow monk, which is your traditional ninja. You've got the drunken master monk, which is, you know, Jackie Chan, drunken master, those old movies. You've got the Kensei monk, which is all about weapons. You've got the way of the four elements, which is playing the avatar, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, and it, there's a lot of different flavor that you can choose with your tradition. This is just uh, the monk's choice to then choose what they're going to focus in on. Are they going to go the way of the peace um, and, and be like a peaceful monk and try to heal and help out where they can? Or are they going to go that ninja type? Or are they going to go the way of the open hand, which is very uh, um, very traditional uh, wushu, uh, I, I believe is one of the words for like uh, some sort of like fighting technique. But the other thing that you get at third level, aside from choosing your subclass, is deflect missiles. And that is what 99% of the people who play a monk, they want to start catching some arrows and throwing them back at people. That's absolutely what they want. Exactly. And the way that this works mechanically is on your turn, well, on somebody else's turn, if they hit you with a ranged attack, you can use your reaction to catch the missile and so somebody shoots you with an arrow, you use your reaction, you roll a d10, you add your dexterity modifier and your monk level, and you reduce the amount of damage you take by the number that you roll. On top of that though, if you reduce that damage all the way to zero, not only do you catch the missile, but you throw it back. You make a free attack action against the person who shot at you, and you can try and hit them. It does cost a key point to do so, but I mean, the payoff that you get is well worth that key point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just missile. So what's classified as a missile? Well, in D&D, the most common thing is arrows but it could also be a spear, it could be a javelin, it could be a ballista, it could be a cannonball, it could be a rock being thrown by a gigantic giant. Um, if you're doing Storm King's giant, it's thunder, you know? Uh, it's just whatever that missile is, right? Yeah, I guess it is important to maybe mention the stipulation that it says here, if you reduce the damage to zero, you can catch the missile if it is small enough for you to hold in one hand and you have at least <laughs> one hand free. So maybe the rock being thrown at you by the hill giants isn't quite going to work. <laughs> maybe a pebble, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I'm pretty sure in Critical Role, they've straight up caught bullets and thrown them back at people. Yeah, because it was small enough to catch in their hands. So, I mean, it's, it's how however your DM wants to interpret it. but And also, I will state this. I was a DM for somebody who played a monk, 
And my biggest regret is I did not give the monk opportunities to deflect missiles. I did not shoot arrows at the monk. I did not shoot boulders or have these traps fall against the monk. And the monk was like, oh man, I want, I want to fling things back at you. And I was like, gosh, you're right. So DMs, give your monks opportunity to throw stuff back at your NPCs. They will feel amazing and you will look so cool. Yeah, this is an area where I would definitely encourage you as a DM get to know the abilities of the monk because like we said there are so many of them to keep in mind that if you want to give the monk the time to shine it may not just come up in your average sort of encounter you know this ability to be able to jump twice as far in one turn if you take step of the wind maybe being able to look for little moments to make those abilities shine and give your monk that opportunity to have the cinematic moments that they want Yes, as always, check with your player, know their abilities, and craft the story to to where they can highlight their strengths. Indeed. See, next up at level four, we get an ability score improvement. Pretty straightforward stuff. Mm -hmm. Monk gets ability score improvement at levels four, eight, 12, 16, and 19. Pretty standard, Pretty standard right? spread there. Also at level four, though, because we get two different abilities every time we level up, we get slow fall. And so when you fall, you can use your reaction to reduce any falling damage you take by an amount equal to five times your monk level. Just absurd. If you're falling down a shaft in like a cave somewhere in a dungeon, all you got to do is be able to touch the wall and... You're fine. You're you're okay. As long as it's not the 250-foot drop, per se, into an ocean, you're you're pretty much fine. Yeah. And for every 10 feet you fall, that's going to be 1d6 points of damage. And five times your monk level, even starting at, you know, fourth level when we get that, you're instantly negating 20 points worth of fall damage. You have to be falling from... Oh gosh, an average of maybe like 40-ish feet before you have to start worrying about it. Yeah, so 40 feet, that's what, 46. Um, so yeah, average is 12, right? Uh, 12, 12 damage with 46, so double that and that's 24. That's the average amount of time. So 80 feet, almost 100, like 80 feet. Yeah. You have to be falling from a pretty absurdly high distance to start even having to worry about taking damage at that point. Then at level five, because it wasn't already enough to be able to do three attacks in one turn, you get extra attack. Yep. Which that is pretty standard for a lot of martial classes, but um, very, very welcome, especially for the monk here. If you love um, just uh, the Jackie Chan punching people in the face, kicking them uh, while they're uh, they're running at you from all corners and just being unpredictable with your attacks, this extra attack is only going to make you make make it even worse for your enemies and for your DM. You've got two regular attacks that you can do, and then if you do flurry of blows, you have two bonus action attacks you can do. Nice. Benefit of extra attack specifically is whenever you take the attack action, you get two attacks from that. You don't have to spend a key point; it just automatically comes with the territory. Yeah, but and rolling into that, uh, you may and you can choose in one of these four attacks to do stunning strike, which you also get at yeah. level five. <laughs> yeah, I believe you can apply it to any attack you make as long as you have the key point to spend for it. Yeah. So the way that this one works is. When you hit another creature with a melee weapon attack, you can spend one of your key points to attempt a stunning strike. The target must succeed on a constitution saving throw or be stunned until the end of your next turn. 
At the end of your next turn, the monk's turn, not the enemy's turn. So they are guaranteed mm-hmm. to lose one of their turns. And that, that's just, that's just boggling. So if you really, if you're going against a boss and you know that this boss is not immune to stun for whatever reason, uh, you can, and you do the flurry of blows, you have four opportunities as long as you have key points to first attack, I try to stun them, they succeed. Second attack, I try to stun them, they succeed. And you can do that four times in one turn. So the likelihood, as long as you've got key points, the likelihood of you being able to stun them is pretty high. Yeah. And just a quick point of order, the DC for that constitution saving throw they're making is going to be equal to eight plus your proficiency bonus plus your wisdom modifier. Another reason why we want to boost that wisdom score. Absolutely. Yeah, that you get more key with your wisdom modifier being high, your AC is bumped up with unarmored defense, and your stunning strike is harder to overcome. Next up, we've got at sixth level, key empowered strikes. This gives you the ability to overcome resistances to non-magical attacks and damage. So you might end up fighting something like a ghost that has resistance to non-magical attacks. And it's really easy for like, by the time you reach sixth level, your fighter, your rogue, they have a decent chance of having a magical weapon of some type that can overcome that damage resistance. But a monk, they can't pick up another fist and use that as a weapon. So the way that they overcome that is your body is just now imbued with the ability to overcome that magic resistance. Yep, this is uh, where you can start punching ghosts and ethereal spirits. We also, uh, I mean, we mentioned this earlier, but uh, uh, before, but at sixth and fifth level, fifth level is when your martial arts die jumps up to a D6 here. So, you know, with all these things that we're talking about, stunning strike, being able to punch ghosts, you're now up to a D6 as well whenever you do that bonus, atta- bonus attack on your with your bonus action here. Then, getting up to level seven. This is the last level where we have two abilities that we receive at the same level. And from this point, it starts to get more into the pattern of, okay, from here on out, you're getting ability score improvements. You're getting monastic tradition features. You're getting improvements to the stuff you've already got. There's still plenty of stuff that comes after this, but this is where things start to slow down a little bit. Is it level seven? Mm Mm-hmm. So first thing at level seven is evasion. If you listen to our Rogue Crunch Squad episode, you're already familiar with this because it's the same ability. That ability being that when you are subjected to a damage dealing effect that encompasses an area, such as a fireball spell, for example, if you normally would be able to have the damage by succeeding, So the idea is, you know, you take full damage if you fail, you take half damage if you succeed. This takes those two states and bumps them up one. So even if you fail, you only take half damage. And if you succeed, you take no damage at all. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is a very popular example is in Critical Role when uh, Liam, the rogue, who also had evasion, a meteor strike, meteors from the ceiling, dropped down. He succeeded. And this massive, like, ninth level spell, he took no damage from. Like that, and mm-hmm. so the fact that the monk also has that with that, in addition to the other ability, gets at level seven, stillness of mind, um, where you can use an action to end an effect on yourself. Like if you're charmed or frightened, makes you really makes you really like a uh, um, uh, uh, a big terror on the battlefield because someone tries to charm you, you just spend an action and you're fine, and you, you succeed. You you somebody throws a fireball at you, you succeed, no damage whatsoever. You are a force on the battlefield. You might look at, with stillness of mind, you need to use your action to end the charmed or frightened condition on yourself, but even still, the monk has no shortage of bonus action opportunities that they can take in the same turn. 
Yeah. Sure, you wouldn't be able to do Flurry of Blows because you have to use your attack action in order to get that, but you can still do Patient Defense, you can still do Step of the Wind. Even if nothing else, the ability to do Patient Defense, you dodge, all attacks against you have disadvantage for the next round, that's pretty great. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, you you prep yourself for the next round at that point, and you're no longer beholden to whatever frightened or charmed effect there is. So now, we actually have a little bit of a break from level 7 to level 10. Level 10 is where we get Purity of Body. At 10th level, your mastery of the key flowing through you makes you immune to disease and poison. Pretty straightforward, and uh, as a DM, pretty frustrating. You got a little bit. You got a poison dragon trying to attack and do, do their poison breath. Cool. The monk will stand right there and take it full force, right? Because uh, immune to poison damage. <laughs> mm-hmm. And immunity to disease doesn't come up as often, but in the instance where your DM does decide to throw a you know, whatever magical plague at you, your monk is going to be very glad that they have that immunity there. Yeah, you, you you don't need your tetanus shot when you're a monk here. Then we get another couple levels of a break before we get to 13th level, Tongue of the Sun and Moon. And this the idea behind this is the energy flowing through you, the key flowing with you, can communicate with the key flowing through other creatures, and you can understand all spoken languages and any creature that can understand a language can understand what you say. And if you've really invested in your wisdom modifier to be really high, where you have, um, uh, you're able to like be you know, just very wise. This this all really puts you into the forefront as being like a diplomat or being like a spokesman. Maybe not with your charisma, but you're able to really pierce through and be that listening ear, that wise wizened guru. Um, that uh, people can turn to. And if you can understand and speak any language, why wouldn't people turn to you, right? Yeah, there really is only one thing that kind of trumps this ability that the monk has, because there is that stipulation, the other creature has to be able to understand a language to understand what you say. There is one little thing I just want to shout out, the College of Eloquence Bard. They have an ability that allows any creature to understand what they say, even if that creature typically doesn't understand a language. And so those, that's animals right there, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is the one subclass out of the entire game that can kind of one-up this ability that the monk has. Then level 14, Diamond Soul. Your mastery of key grants you proficiency in all saving throws. <laughs> All saving throws. Normally, you only have proficiency in two saving throws. Um, but uh, at 14th, you just decide, you know what? I'm pretty at peace. I'm almost to Nirvana. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be really good at saving against everything. So Yeah, everybody else, as soon as they hear that uh, charisma saving throw that everybody has to roll, they're like, dang it, I'm not proficient. And then here comes the monk saying, oh, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, and in addition to that, if you, make, if you fail... You can then be like, wait a second, and you spend a key point to re-roll it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're like, I'm proficient, but just on the off chance, I don't succeed. Which at level 14, I mean, how many key points do you have? You've got... 14 key points. 14 key points. And you're like, mm, I, pro I probably have a few key points to spend here. I could probably succeed this by re-rolling you only get to do it once so it's not like an infinite ability where you can just keep spending key points but still yeah and again you regain all of your key points not on a long rest but on a short rest short so rest even more powerful yeah oh man next level level 15 you get timeless body and you just you can't 
you don't age. Your body doesn't get old. <laughs> you you may look all wizened and all wrinkly and old, but uh, in all reality, you're just literally timeless, and your body just says, you know what? You perfected, um, in level 14, you perfected your soul so well. You got a diamond soul. That level 15, I think the body should reflect that. So uh, uh, beauty comes from the inside, and then uh, I don't know if that relates here to the monk, but uh, <laughs> at the very least, your body won't age whatsoever. Yeah, and not only that, you don't need to eat. <laughs> you don't need food, and you don't need water. Mm -hmm. It does say you can still die of old age, though. Yeah, and I think that largely is up to the DM in terms of, you know, what does that look like in the game? What kind of situations are going to lead to that? But, I mean, you, you are the wizened old person who's just at peace with their body. Can you imagine an elf monk who gets to level 15, who elves are already going to live for thousands of years, and mm -hmm. then their body just doesn't time. They have a timeless body regardless, so they can die mm -hmm. of old age, but when do elves really die of old age, you know? Oh, gosh. Okay, now we're getting up into the very last few things here. Level 18, Empty Body. You can use your action to spend four key points to become invisible for one minute. That's not all. <laughs> that That's not, not all. all. <laughs> Yes, not you only also... can you just, like, reach within your body the energy that moves this meat puppet that you're walking around into, say, people can't see me anymore. While you are invisible, you have resistance to all damage except for force damage, and you can spend eight key points to cast the Astral Projection spell without needing material components. That is... That is... That's a lot, Ned. That is a lot yeah. to do. I mean, it's 18th level, but that's a lot. Yeah, and how often do even spellcasters cast the Astral Projection spell? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've never done it, but that's a 9th level spell. And it costs Astral Projection. I'm looking at it right now. It, it costs one Jacinth, is that how you say it, worth at least 1,000 gold pieces and a carved bar of silver worth at least 100 gold pieces, which the spell consumes. So that's 1,100 mm -hmm. gold pieces a pop. And the monk doesn't care about worldly possessions. They just reach within their body and say, I am one with the universe. I, I am one with the force. The force is with me. And boom, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and you can go anywhere with that, right? I mean, that's just... Way to go, monk. You, you, you know, you, you've conquered the material world so much that you can just leave this horrid place. Yes. Well done, monk. So much so, in fact, that by the time you reach level 20, the ability is literally called Perfect Self. And the way this works is when you roll for initiative and you don't have any key points remaining, you regain four of them. So not only do you already have 20 key points, and if you ever just at the beginning of a battle, you don't have any, you're like, oh no, dang it. Well, I'll just... Let's get four, just because I decide to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that is every little... That's not just... The, that's just the base monk, no monastic traditions. That That's the, no abilities from the monastic traditions whatsoever. That's a lot of stuff that the monk can do. Uh, we've been going on for a while. Do we want to talk about just one monastic tradition? Yeah, I think we'd be remiss if we if we didn't talk about one of them. So uh, let's talk about one of them from the uh, player's handbook. There are three to choose from in the player's handbook specifically. As Ned mentioned, you got uh, the Way of the Shadow, which is more of the ninja type, the Way of the Four Elements if you want to be the Avatar, or you can just mm -hmm. go play the Avatar Legends tabletop system, which Improv Tabletop does. Shout out to Improv Tabletop. Or... Ooh, ooh. 
the final one, which is Way of the Open Hand. Yeah, this one, I maybe I don't have any data to back this up, but just my gut feeling is that this one probably gets overlooked a lot. I know certainly that all of my players who have played a monk haven't really looked at this one very much just because the others are so thematic Mm -hmm. but this one what it lacks in kind of a specialized thematic sort of hook it makes up for just in good mechanics really solid performance solid solid stuff in this tradition here yeah so starting at third level you gain your open hand technique and so you can manipulate not only your own key but you can manipulate your enemy's key a little bit so whenever you hit a creature with one of the attacks gained by your flurry of blows you can impose one of the following effects on that target option one it must succeed on a dexterity saving throw or be knocked prone Option two, it must make a strength saving throw, and if it fails, you can push it up to 15 feet away from you. 15 Or option feet? three, 15. Like, the standard shove attack pushes people five feet away or knocks them prone. Yeah, and so, like, if somebody's near the edge or on a bridge or on the ledge, like, of a cliff, I mean, and they're they're like, I'm, I'm 10 feet, I'm 15 feet away, I'm pretty far away from that ledge, and you're like, no, you're not. Bam! Mm -hmm. And they just go flying! Exactly. And then the third option here is the creature can't take reactions until the end of your next turn. Oh my gosh, which that would be terrible if you like go up to a wizard on a ledge and just, and you pop, 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 and you kick them. Oh man, that would be just like off the ledge or if they like are, if you have a wizard in your, or like spellcaster in your party, and I mean, uh, counter spell, that's a reaction. And so if you want to ensure that your wizard can get off um, a spell, you go up to their opposing wizard, you you do this open hand technique and boom, they can't take a reaction. They can't do counter spell. Mm-hmm. So that, that paves the way forward for all of your spellcasters for the entire next round. Yeah. And a more straightforward, like for uh, if you're fighting against a martial type person, if you go in there and like you need to be right up in this person's grill to be able to hit them, but they're going to hit you really hard if you're still that close. You yeah. just make sure that one of your flurry blows attacks gets rid of their reactions and then you can run away and they can't get an opportunity attack against you. Yeah, they just have to watch you. And especially when people have like the set sentinel feet where mm-hmm. uh, if the sentinel feet is nasty where if they, they use your their opportunity of attack to attack you, you can't move away anymore. You have to stay there. And so mm-hmm. being able to use your react your open hand technique to stop their reactions, that's that's critical to your survival, especially at level three, trying to get out like there. Yeah, so this already we're starting to see a little bit of the flavor that maybe makes the battle master such a special fighter subclass. Yeah. That it's not just about dishing out the damage, but you also have some field control abilities that you're getting with the open hand. Yeah, you control the other members or other, the other players' action economy. They no longer can use the reaction. They no longer, they have to spend half their movement to stand up if they're knocked prone. All those things can be critical on the battlefield. They, they The little cuts will add up eventually. But we've talked enough about the third level open hand technique. It jumps down to the sixth level for the way of the open hand called wholeness of body, which at sixth level, uh, you gain the ability to heal yourself. As an action, you can regain hit points equal to three times your monk level. And you get to do that once per long rest. That's awesome. If you're if you're in the middle of a battlefield and like you have a breather, but your, your cleric is trying to revive somebody like with a revive spell, you're like, okay, it's good. Uh, you can just say, I'm good for a little bit. And as an action, boom, heal yourself. Which is very clutch for your healer who might mean to be able to 
uh, do some healing on the barbarian who's also up in the mix, getting lots of damage taken. Yeah, and at six level, three times your monk level, so three times six, it's 18 hit points. That's nothing to scoff at. And then at level 11, tranquility. This one, uh, I love the flavor of this one, and you see it used to pretty great effect in Critical Role's first campaign when Grog is fighting against, uh, oh, what's his name? Why can't I remember his name? The fighting Pit with the Org? Or are you talking no, about there, the other barbarian himself? There's this fighting master, this oh, monk yeah. that he's training with. At the bat in the Temple of Korg, right? Yes. The, yeah, the Temple of Korg. I can't remember his name, but he was like the leader of the Temple of Korg. Uh, and Grog had to prove himself, so he went to the battle pit. Um, yeah. Yeah, for this one, we're going to have to reference a spell. Uh, but here's how this works. So you enter kind of this special meditative state. And at the end of a long rest, you gain the effect of the Sanctuary spell. And that lasts until the start of your next long rest. Uh, but let's let's talk about these Sanctuary spells specifically, because this one is a lot of fun. Uh, can be quite frustrating for people who are trying to hit you. <laughs> yeah. The Sanctuary spell, um, it says it's only a first level spell, um, but it lasts for a minute. And it says when whoever casts it, you ward a creature within range, and the range is 30 feet, against attack. Until the spell ends, any creature who targets the warded creature with an attack or a spell must first make a wisdom saving throw. On a failed save, the creature must choose a new target or they lose the attack or spell entirely. Um, this spell doesn't protect the warded creature from area effects like maybe a fireball, uh, so which it says in the spell itself. But if the warded creature makes an attack or casts a spell, um, the spell ends. So whoever is being has the sanctuary cast on them they are protected as long as they uh, don't cast a spell or they make an attack but yeah everybody has to make a wisdom saving throw which as we stated if you're a monk the second attribute that you're going to want to uh bump up as fast as possible is your wisdom due to the unarmored defense and your key points so them trying to make a saving throw against you is another reason why you'd want to do something like this so that it would be harder for them to overcome your spell save dc in this instance and there's just a couple things that again to reiterate what makes this ability more special than just the sanctuary spell by itself you can only cast it on yourself but you get it every day when you wake up and it lasts the entire day. The only way that you can end it is by attacking somebody else. I did not read that, how it lasts the entire day. Yeah, until you make your first attack on any given day. Well, from long rest to long rest is the mechanical way of saying true, it. But true. practically speaking, every day, as long as you're not attacking other people, until you make that first attack, anybody who tries to attack you has to make a wisdom saving throw if they fail they can't attack you which if they're if they're a melee person then and they ran up to you to attack chances are they're gonna lose the attack unless there's somebody right next to you or they have movement to run away from you again and if you really want to lean into this you can just keep taking the dodge action over and over again every time they try to attack you it's with disadvantage mm-hmm yeah Absolutely. So even if they do manage to succeed in that wisdom saving throw and actually do manage to get in a hit on you, then they're going to have an even harder time actually managing to strike. Yeah, this this is the one that really, it's my favorite part of the way of the open hand. I mean, the quivering <laughs> palm, the 17th level ability is also really cool, though. Tranquility is personally awesome. my favorite. But here's how the quivering palm works. I'm just going to read it word for word because I love the way they set it up. 
At 17th level, you gain the ability to set up lethal vibrations in someone's body. <laughs> when you hit a creature with an unarmed strike, you can spend three key points to start these imperceptible vibrations, which last for a number of days equal to your monk level. And again, you get the starting at 17th level, so these vibrations can be going on for at least 17 days. <laughs> and these vibrations, they're harmless un unless you use your action to end them. And to do so, you and the target must be on the same plane of existence. And when you use this action, the creature must make a constitution saving throw. If it fails, it is reduced to zero hit points. If it succeeds, it takes 10d10 necrotic damage. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like the wording here of when it says you uh, it's harmless unless you use your action to end them. I think end them means the person, not necessarily the <laughs> vibrations. <laughs> That's That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you could let them just kind of filter out you know spend go th go through the entire length of days until the vibrations finally end <laughs> and you can only have one creature under the effects of this at a time oh and it does say you can choose to end the vibrations harmlessly without using an action so if you want to choose the way of peace you can do that but you just you punch somebody and then two weeks later they're just having dinner and then all of a sudden boom they're dead yeah yeah so you could really you can really make good on the threats of you're saying like now I've now I've uh, modified your heart or I've implanted some vibrations into your heart and if you get out of line in the next month or two mm -hmm. weeks here I'll know because I'll be watching over this entire tournament and I can just end you which that's a, a really fun thing for a dungeon master to maybe pull on some rowdy players if they're causing too much of a fuss or a bunch of murder hobos you just have like three monk uh, NPCs who are way of the open hand 17th level and they're like now you stop murder hoboing and if you don't your murder hobo days come to an end because yeah. I will end you. So that is the wave the open hand. Again, maybe not the most thematically enticing, but these abilities are so cool. They're so cool. And if you actually want to see a good example of this, I know um, Josh's campaign, the Titans of Altera, um, they've got a character, Dalfin, who he's a monk. And I believe he is uh, the way of the open hand. But I know also in season one, uh, Dalfin's like monastery uh, that he comes from, all of those NPCs are also way of the open hand. And they are able to use um, some of these really higher level abilities in action in battle. So it's really cool to see that, uh, how Josh was able to implement NPCs to showcase some of these higher level abilities despite the player only being level three, level four, way of the open hand. And speaking of cool NPCs, I did find the name of that individual from Critical Role. His name is Earthbreaker Groon. That's just, that's, that's an awesome, that's an awesome monk name. <laughs> Earthbreaker Groon. That's, it's just, there are some fantastic examples of people playing monks, NPCs, or, um, I mean, Marisha Ray and Critical Role also playing a monk of a different uh, um, way or a different monastic tradition. But also, I feel like a pretty good example of how monks can be really awesome. But when it comes down to it, I think we'll always come back to this of when whatever class you're playing, just um, either talk to your DM and say, this is what I'd like to do as my class or as the DM, get to know your abilities, get to know your player's abilities so that you can craft the story to where they feel awesome. Because if they feel awesome, you'll feel awesome. Exactly. That's the synergy. Mm-hmm. Man, well, we have spent a lot of time talking about the monk. Holy cow. But we do it all for you, fans. We do it all for you. Yes, this might end up being our longest Crunch Squad episode yet. We'll have to see uh, what happens when it's all edited down. But whew, 
just so much to talk about with the monk because it's such a cool class. Yeah, it absolutely is a cool class. Like I said, it's my next one that I want to do. I've, I've done a bard. I'm currently a sorcerer in a um, uh, Curse of Strahd campaign right now, a clockwork sorcerer, um, which is my second, my first like real um, diving into like only magic. Um, but Sawyer, hope this helped you out in trying to get your monk up and running in your current campaign and figuring out ways of like what you can do with the monk and what's possible and hopefully it's not overwhelming all the things that you get every single level and that your other the other players aren't jealous of all the things you get when they have to wait till level four or eight yeah fortunately you'll have time to get to know all of these things i personally like if i was invited to do a level 21 shot i probably wouldn't choose a monk because that's a lot of abilities to keep in mind for just like this character that you made up on the fly, but such a cool class. I, I really dig it. Yeah. It's so much fun. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Crunch Squad. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we have enjoyed geeking out about this awesome class and all of the ridiculously minute and intricate things that it can do. But from wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps boost our ratings throughout each podcast service. It puts our show in other people's recommended feeds, and it lets us know that you like what we're doing. But if you want to write something a little longer than a review, you could also email us at iCastFireball2020 at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear from you and we're hoping to get the word out there and set this podcast on fire (laughs) anyway to get the most recent up-to-date content from all of us here please follow us on instagram and twitter and facebook where i cast fireball 20 on instagram and twitter i cast fireball 2020 on facebook uh there you can get possible sneak peeks of upcoming episodes interesting insights from the players in dm and behind the scenes shots of us making this incredibly fun world and also just talking about rules because that's fun sometimes too yeah just want to give a quick shout out i mean we as if we haven't already we're going to give a quick <laughs> shout out to our sister podcast improv tabletop improv where tabletop. i take the turn as the gm we've done an avatar legends campaign that recently wrapped up and we've got an upcoming coming Blades in the Dark campaign that we are very excited about. Still going to be taking place in the Avatarverse, but using this fun new system. Yes, so it's going to be awesome. You really, really should keep your ear and eye out for that. In addition to those, we have our 15-month backlog of Fate Accelerated campaigns, just these little mini one-month bite-sized campaigns where uh, stuff goes off the rail pretty easily, but you know, (laughs) it's, it's a grand old time. If you've listened to any of the campaigns that Thomas has been and you have heard how easily they can go off the rail. Yeah. Oh, man. And and how terrible uh, our accents can become as the campaigns go on. <laughs> so whether you like tabletop games, improvisation, or just hearing more from me and some of our other friends, then we recommend you go and give Improv Tabletop a listen. But lastly, please like, subscribe, and share with your friends and fellow wacky adventurers. But until next time, I am Ned, your host for Crunch Squad, and today I've been joined by... Thomas, the monk wannabe player. Keep that fire going, everybody and we will see you next time.